This is Tom Koslick, the head of research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for this episode of our Hilltop Talks Politics and Finance podcast series for 2021. During these discussions, we consider topics that intersect the worlds of politics and finance at the federal, state, and local levels in the United States. We often concentrate on issues related to the U.S. public finance and municipal bond market. Today, we're going to tackle such a topic, uh, and this is one that's developed into a relatively newer threat to municipal credit. And it's also a topic that's risen to the top of the list that public finance management teams are concerning themselves with. That topic is cybersecurity and the risk and risks that cyber attacks pose. Today, we've got Omid Ramani from Fitch Ratings. Omid is an associate director with Fitch's U.S. Public Finance Tax Supporter Group in Austin, Texas. He works on a team that covers uh, local government issuers in Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Colorado, and Arizona. In addition, he also serves in the company-wide cyber risk team, which is within the company's cross-practice ESG group. Prior to joining Fitch, Omid worked as an analyst at S&P in public finance, uh, focusing on utilities and cyber risk. Omid is also an active archaeologist. And uh, I know that based on some of the travels that I've taken recently, he's given me some good uh, recommendations of places to visit. So thank you very much, Omid, for that. <laughs> and also thank you for joining us today. We're very happy to have you. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. So the, the first thing that I'd like to jump in and talk about kind of broadly uh, is, and like, I'd like to ask and investigate is, what is Fitch's perspective and the practices surrounding and associated uh, where cyber risk are concerned? Sure, absolutely, Tom. So for us, cyber risk is a very important emerging threat. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic of conversation, obviously, with our sustainable finance and ESG group. And, uh, and really, in the last 11 months, we've, uh, we've done a lot to bring this topic into U.S. public finance. And we've managed to build uh, what I would consider a really good infrastructure around how to tackle the risk, how to educate our analysts, um, and how to engage about this conversation uh, with our issuers in a way that is an, an, a non-threatening way. Uh, my personal philosophy when I started my role here in uh, collaborating to build the uh, sort of the cyber practice in USPF is um, my main goal is to support our issuers, make sure that we have timely conversations about this topic, and to inform them what kind of threats really um, face them. And I think that's what uh, that's what we've also done internally. We've uh, we've had a lot of success doing things like cyber war games, tabletop exercises, uh, coming up with. Uh, an approach of how to rate to cyber risk. Obviously, you know, as this risk continues to evolve, and this is one of the fastest evolving risks that that Fitch tackles, uh, we've we've managed to build a framework around that, and in such a way that that framework can be uh, can that can evolve with the risk, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, what are the specific risks where public finance entities are concerned that uh, you uh, talk? about internally and externally a uh, most? 
Sure. So obviously, when we talk about public finance, I would say the number one cyber risk facing our issuers is ransomware. And I think that's across the board. Um, ransomware in the past four years has really evolved to be the main threat in the market. Uh, obviously, we all remember Atlanta and the Atlanta attack. That I would consider that more, more of a watershed moment. It was the attack that really brought attention to this emerging risk for municipal issuers. And since then, it's only grown. And um, could you do me a favor, Omid? Could you let's step back for a second and let's could you describe uh, ransomware? Uh, sure. I'm going to ask you to describe ransomware, and then I'm going to ask you to describe a little bit of the context of the Atlanta situation. But let's start with uh, defining ransomware. Absolutely, absolutely. So ransomware is a type of malware that um, can infect the system. It can basically lock its uh, authorized users out of the system and take the data uh, hostage and uh, generally uh, ask for a ransom, a sum of money to be paid for the release of that data. And so this would be a situation where uh, a cyber criminal is going to send a, like an email or and, and that's how it is that something like this is delivered? That is correct. So the number one form uh, that ransomware can get into a system is through social engineering attacks, basically yep. through phishing emails, um, targeting authorized users of that system. Mm -hmm. And in relation to uh, to Atlanta and you know how this risk has evolved, um, you know Atlanta's situation was was a fairly um, was a fairly novel situation at the time for the size of the issuer, and I think that that's why it gathered so much media attention. Mm -hmm. um, and by today's standards, that ransom, that initial ransom demand was fairly small. It was just over $50,000. Obviously, that has changed quite a bit to the point where now the ransoms that are being uh, asked of issuers is good, good number in the millions of dollars. Um, and since then, what we have seen um, on the uh, on the attacker side, on the threat actor side, is that they've managed to really refine their approach on how to extort public finance issuers for ransom. So some of the most sophisticated groups in the world today actually um, exploit a lot of the, uh, for example, data that public finance issuers have to legally provide, things like audits and disclosures, and they and these threat actors, uh, the more sophisticated ones will actually hire, for example, financial analysts, and they will build ransom models, and these analysts will be able to determine based on disclosures, you know, what is an appropriate amount to extort from uh, entity from an entity that they would have the appetite of paying. So let me get this straight. So let me get this straight. So one of the things that you're saying is that the concept of disclosure, which is a concept of, that we take very seriously in the municipal bond market, what you're saying is that that the cyber criminals are uh, using the disclosure that we take so seriously in municipals uh, and they use that against the public finance issuers. In a way, in a way, specifically uh, finances that entities have to disclose. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, because ultimately cyber risk is a liquidity problem, both on the recovery side as well as on the initial ransom side when the attackers are t trying to target specific entities. Now, 
Those are the more sophisticated ag- actors. A lot of the times, and in the past, uh, what we were seeing was more shotgun-style attacks, where they would target a large number of uh, entities, and they would get a small percentage of them, and then they would extort them for ransom. Today, that that landscape has evolved, and disclosure is used uh, in some ways to basically determine you know, how much money an entity has, what their liquidity or fund balance looks like, and what the actual appetite for payment may be. So are there, uh, so are so on the one hand, it sounds like there are situations where specific entities are being targeted. Uh, are there are there other types of uh, kind of a, attacks and or um, situations where public finance entities are at risk where uh, cybersecurity sure. is concerned? Sure, absolutely. Obviously, um, you know, data breaches are, are are a major point, both with ransomware as well as just uh, standalone breaches. Uh, data, most people, what most people need to understand is that data has value. It has a dollar value. Mm-hmm. And for example, you know, one thing I, I talk about is school districts. You know, uh, school districts are a favorite target of cyber criminals because they're very data heavy and they include uh, personal information of people that are generally uh, not adults. Therefore, they probably don't have credit monitoring services. It is easier to uh, steal those people's identities. And that data has value. There's actually a dollar amount associated with each piece of data on the dark web. And so uh, what we've seen recently, and especially through COVID, which has really transformed the cyber landscape, has been not just ransomware attacks, but data exfiltration ransomware attacks, where it's not just the ransom, but the threat and the fear that if something goes awry in the negotiations with the cyber criminals, that data may be exfiltrated and then sold on the dark web. And that has caused all kinds of legal questions about liability for data security in the market. Which is, so if if that's the case, what are the things that public finance entities uh schools hospitals what are the what are the steps that they're that they've been taking uh you know you just mentioned that especially uh kind of during and post covid there's even been more of a threat other specific steps that those types of entities are taking in order to protect, protect themselves absolutely so i think um one thing that's become glaringly clear is our issuers are having a lot more conversations around cyber risk today than they were in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, their um, boards and councils are a lot more aware of this problem and get briefed on this problem a lot more than four years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's just because how much the um, the threat landscape has evolved in in the last in the last four years and really in the last eighteen months. I mean, it's been when I say COVID has been transformative for cybercrime. Uh, it, it's not a hyperbole. Uh, uh, just the uh, there, there has been such a huge increase in the number of attacks since COVID that um, I think it's been an acceleration of the capabilities of the cyber criminals. And part of that obviously has to do with global disruptions always encourage crime, number one. Number two, COVID was a very unique environment where basically everybody had to take their infrastructure remote. Mm-hmm. And most of the entities, especially in the public finance world, did not have cyber conscious IT engineering that could have safely taken their uh, infrastructure remote in such a short period of time without exposing gaps in their systems. 
So is there, are there specific things that you're seeing that uh, these school districts and hospitals are specific things, I, sh I should say, specific steps that they're taking to isolate themselves and to keep yeah. their the data safe? Yeah, so what we've seen is a lot more emphasis on training, because uh, as I always say, cyber risk is not a technology risk, it's a management risk. It's how you manage uh, not just a breach, but pre-breach protocols, training your employees. Uh, social engineering is still the primary way entities fall prey to cyber criminals. So if you train your staff to be aware of uh, sophisticated phishing attempts, spear phishing attempts, suspicious activity on systems um, and, and not just through email, what, uh, which is traditional phishing. What we're seeing today is, um, and, and it's become really uh, widespread since COVID, is smishing, basically using text message. And, then, and that's because what COVID has done is it's uh, caused a lot of people to also use their mobile devices for business purposes. Mm -hmm. So, um, with phishing, there's a lot of countermeasures entities can take, um, technology countermeasures through sorting through suspicious emails before they get to the recipient's hands. With smishing, you don't really have that technology or capability yet because that's basically, it's up to the phone companies to develop that and that hasn't been developed. So it's a lot easier way to bypass the countermeasures we have and get into people's mobile devices and ultimately into their systems. So. I think having a cyber conscious workforce that practices good cyber hygiene is still the number one way of protecting your organization. Sure, there is, there's, there's technology measures you can take, but those technology measures are not really effective if you don't have a cyber conscious workforce. And we'll see, what we've seen in the last couple of years is states have began to uh, mandate annual training and certification for public servants so that at least they can increase the level of awareness. I know in Texas, we have such a law. Um, so I think that's still the number one way for management to manage their cyber risk is to train their employees in cyber risk. And then there's some tools that, that you can use. You know, one thing that has become very popular is multi-factor authentication uh, along with a VPN service. Um, and, and we see how a combination of those two can significantly cut down an entity's cyber risk when, when used properly together by, a, uh, by an employee that is cyber, that has good cyber hygiene and is, and is cyber conscious. Um, some of the largest attacks we've seen in the last year and a half, two years could really have been aver averted with the use of things like multi-factor authentication coupled with um, good VPN services. And so do, do me a favor, uh, could you describe yeah. a little bit what multi-factor authentication is? Absolutely. So multi-factor authentication is a service that basically requires two forms of authenticating a user. And what most people are um, I have seen with multi-factor authentication, the way most people recognize it is, for example, when you try to log, when you go to the website of your bank and you try to log into your bank, it may send a text message or an email to a separate address, mm -hmm. at which point you have to, you know, provide a PIN number that was sent to you or log in through that portal to be able to actually access your information. It puts another layer of security between you and the useful information. Uh, that it's much, much harder for the cyber criminals to, to get through. And this service, I will say, you know, one thing I always hear talking about cyber risk in the municipal world is, you know, the limitation of um, 
financial resources. Just by definition, municipal entities have to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars. And this is one service that is extremely inexpensive compared to the amount of protection that it provides. And I think can be a real game changer for improving the cyber hygiene of a municipal entity. And a VPN service, what uh, what level of uh, safety does that offer? Uh, obviously, a, a, a large level of safety compared to an organization that doesn't use a VPN service. Anytime you can muddle your footprints or uh, make it more difficult for a threat actor to actually recognize what it is that you're doing or follow your footsteps, so to say, follow your digital footsteps, the harder time they're going to have to not only get into your systems, but, but to navigate your systems. It's also important to segment your, your systems, especially backups. You know, one thing we've seen since Atlanta is a lot of institutions has, have implemented data backups so that in case of a catastrophic uh, attack, they can run a backup and at least have a functional system. Mm -hmm. um, I think an important thing to do with those backups is to make sure they're air-gapped or that they're separate from your main system because if your main system gets infected and if it's a sophisticated enough ransomware, then those that, that will also lock up your backups and you will not have access to it. So I think, I think these are very inexpensive technology things that entities can incorporate into their cyber hygiene principles in addition to a cyber conscious workforce. Let me ask you one more question about specific threats, and then I want to uh, move on to another uh, topic that is related to kind of specific attacks. Um, sure. But the the question that I wanted to ask about the specific about the threats, you've already you mentioned the concept of social engineering a couple of times. Yep. Could you describe, um, you know, what that is and how it is that cyber criminals uh, use social engineering? Absolutely. So um, cyber criminals have gotten really good at tricking people to believe they're harmless or that they're part of their organizations. Uh, and they use a variety of what methods of doing this. Sometimes they use incentives like offering things like uh, you've been uh, you've been selected to receive a gift card by HR. Please log into this portal and you know redeem your gift card. Or to the point where you may get a text message from your boss's boss that says, hey, so-and-so, I'm having a hard time logging into my computer. Uh, would you mind assisting me uh, logging into my computer? So I think that's the, uh, that, that's the number one way. They exploit people's emotions mm -hmm. to be able to get into systems. And that's like the I social engineering part. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, it, it's much more psychology than it is technology. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, now, the specific attacks that we, you know, you mentioned Atlanta. Um, mm -hmm. What are the other more significant uh, attacks that we've seen in the public finance world in recent years? Sure. So we have things like Baltimore, uh, New Orleans, um, and a whole slew of supply chain attacks, which basically is what I call third party risk or vendor risk, where mm -hmm. It was smaller entities, smaller cities, say, or utilities that may have used a common um, pay system, a company that would, uh, you know, collect credit card payments for them. And that credit card uh, payment uh, company was actually what was targeted. And as a result, like dozens of smaller municipalities fell prey to um, to these these types of attacks. And, and that's these types of supply chain style attacks 
have really increased uh, during COVID. I mean, things like the SolarWinds attack or Excelion, where it was one vendor that then ended up compromising hundreds of other organizations. And I think that's a number one um, risk right now is these types of supply chain style attacks, because a lot of times you can uh, fortify your front door, but you kind of don't know who's coming and going out of your back door. So I think it's really important to have an understanding with vendors that you do business with about what their cyber hygiene or cyber conscious uh, management practices look like. Because we're operating in a world today where we're completely dependent on technology and especially through COVID. And we have to, we have no choice but to interact uh, with other systems as a part of doing business. And so I think it is a, it's a really important thing to understand what kind of cyber ecosystem we're operating in when we're interacting with those systems. You mentioned several state and local governments. Are there other sectors in the public finance world that are most at risk for uh, cyber attacks? Absolutely. So healthcare, I would consider to be a very high risk sector. Um, we've seen uh, very alarming attacks in infrastructure, specifically in water sewer. Um, earlier in the year with the Oldsmar, Florida attack. Um, and that has that that sort of has me worried because I think the, these type those types of disrupt purely disruptive attacks that are not financially motivated like Oldsmar are um, are going to become the way of the future. And you know some people are calling that style of attack killware, which I think like I said it's it's the future of cyber not just cyber crime but cyber warfare, which is a major part of this discussion. You know the not just cyber criminals, but nation state actors who can target us. Um, and, and we've seen a correlation between geopolitical events across the world and the rise of cyber risk here in the United States. So that's what I would say probably uh, is something that I think about a lot is those types of attacks against critical infrastructure and healthcare. Healthcare, ob obviously, also because of just the amount of private information healthcare entities hold about their patients. They have been since the beginning, and they continue to be a favorite target for attackers for extorting money. So it's not just kind of the run-of-the-mill cyber criminals. Uh, it's also, from what I'm understanding, are you describing kind of nation-state kind of from a military perspective? There's a threat there as well? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, one thing, our, our federal system in the United States is, is kind of unique to us. Most of the world doesn't operate on that system. And um, ultimately, the United States operates in a global environment with geopolitical opponents. Um, mm -hmm. And um, those opponents have begun to realize, they began to realize this years ago, really, it's been like eight or nine years that cyber warfare can become a linchpin of their asymmetric warfare strategies against the United States. And some of our, uh, some of our biggest sworn enemies have invested heavily in their cyber warfare capabilities. And for a lot of them, they don't differentiate between federal, st and federal state and local governments. If they can uh, attack American government, they don't necessarily always care about the scale more about damage. And that's why for me, things like the rise of killware is, is very worrying. Um, one thing we have to understand is our public servants, uh, especially in state and local governments and public finance, always have been very concerned with their very limited constituency and service areas. But today they have to understand that they're operating on the front lines of a global cyber war 
between all kinds of powers, and they have to factor that risk when engaging their employees in building a cyber-conscious environment. So which other countries are we talking about here? Um, generally, uh, I think that's going to be, I, I will leave that more to, in the news, <laughs> Tom. Mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, for, for anybody who's interested in, in really researching it, it, it won't be hard to just take a look at news events and see what countries we are having issues with and uh, what countries are investing heavily in their cyber warfare strategies. Okay. So have there been uh, specific rating actions and or outlooks that have been impacted in uh, recent months or years as a result of cyber, uh, cyber attacks? So uh, at, at Fitch, we've, we really implemented this kind of cyber lens in public finance in the last 11 months or so. And while we haven't had a specific rating action, we have, had, we have dealt with many issuers who've had cyber attacks. Okay. And what we've done is we've made sure to include that information in our, in our racks, in our publications about those issuers. Uh, we've included them as sensitivities to the rating, and we have an internal process where we continuously monitor those credits to make sure that their finances are consistent and they're not being overly impacted by their breaches. And um, I think that's a that's a key way of approaching this risk because a lot of the time, most of the time, actually, it's it's not really possible to gauge what impact an attack has had on an entity until months after the actual attack has occurred where there can be a, uh, you know, post-mortem uh, and issues can be diagnosed. And sometimes these issues can be very minor and may require minor investment. Sometimes they can be very major and would require an entity to basically tear everything out of the wall and rebuild, which would obviously be a lot more expensive and would have more of a credit impact. So I think it's really important to uh, signal to the market that we are watching this. We are constantly uh, observing what, an, uh, what issuers do after a cyber attack. And generally, we've seen that just uh, how much conversation there has been about this topic in the last few years has resulted in much stronger management responses to this risk as of recent than, for example, when Atlanta first happened. So are there, what are the others? Is there specific points in the Fitch criteria that are uh, asked about beforehand? And then are there specific questions that exist that would be uh, discussed kind of after a breach? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, we have, I think we're actually the first rating agencies to include cyber in a criteria. It is currently in our water sewer criteria. There'll be more to come on uh, on that later. But yes, we do every time we engage issuers. We do ask questions. We ask questions about, you know, tell me a little bit about your training methods, how you guys manage cyber risk with employees. Uh, we also want to learn about, obviously, uh, cyber insurance, which is a you know, major topic of its own. Uh, we want to understand how they budget for, for cyber risk, because I think understanding the rationale and mentality of an issuer and how they budget for cyber risk gives a lot of insight into how management use cyber risk. And if, uh, if they have had an attack, obviously we want to understand, you know, what is the attack impacting, uh, what practices of the, uh, of the issuer may have maybe down for a period of time. If the attack will require a lot of immediate investment and what that will look like. 
what the expectation of management is going forward. And generally, I think both pre and post attack, these conversations are all centered around management. Because again, for me, cyber risk always comes down to how management is managing the risk. And in this situation, I think it's really, really important for us to have that conversation with management. So what is next where cybersecurity is concerned? What is it that in the rest of 2021 and 2022, like what is the emerging theme or what are the emerging themes that uh, investors and observers uh, should be looking out for where cybersecurity is concerned in the public finance world? Sure. So I think uh, there are several. Okay. So firstly, the cost of good cyber insurance is going up day by day. Mm-hmm. And um, what was the cost of good insurance three years ago can't buy you decent insurance today. And I think that trend will continue. Insurers are, are beginning to realize, especially with things like data exfiltration, that there is a lot higher cost associated with these attacks than there was a few years ago. So I think that insurance market evolving with the risk is going to pose a challenge for for public finance issuers with obviously limited financials to be able to invest in in things like really good cyber insurance going forward. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and, and I think that's 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 probably going to be a challenge because after Atlanta, I can tell you what a lot of organizations did is they ran out and they bought cyber insurance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, they, and that was that was the linchpin of their entire cyber risk strategy was we have cyber insurance. Um, but what happens when that is no longer good cyber insurance is no longer affordable? So what we've seen is these sort of stay, these sort of municipal insurance pools are now venturing into cyber trying to provide some levels of protection. But I think just the cost of cyber insurance is going to become a challenge for the sector. Um, the evolution of ransomware, uh, the uh, rise in popularity of cryptocurrencies, which are basically the drive ransomware. I mean, just to give you an idea, 98% of all ransoms are paid in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So as cyber, as uh, as cryptocurrencies become more popular, cybercrime will evolve with that. I mean, Bitcoin is on its way to reaching an all-time high right now in price. And obviously, the more valuable it gets, the more lucrative the trade becomes. What we've also seen is also an expansion of the capabilities of the criminals, where now you could basically buy cyber cyber, uh, cyber tools, things like malware, ransomware on the dark web, with money back guarantees and technical support. So anybody can set up like a cottage industry of cybercrime and generate cryptocurrency. Um, the risk from nation states and sophisticated malware, including killware, is only going to increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, which with and of that, killware, like I said, is probably the one I'm most concerned about. I think it will be the next evolution of cyber warfare and cybercrime. And that it's it's a it's a system that can really have a human impact. I mean, just to give you an idea, in 2020 was the first year where there was fatality as a result of a cyber attack. And what Killware is designed to do is to focus on things that can hurt people. So things like poisoning water supplies, um, destroying chemical plants, uh, causing real world havoc. And as we move more of our technology into automation, um, you know, with things like self-driving cars, internet of things, 
and the everyday objects that we begin to rely on and issuers begin to rely on, their SCADA systems, for example, the more that risk from that specific type of malware is going to become evident. So that's probably where I see um, the concern and the fact that cybercrime is continuing to increase. I mean, according to the FBI, just in 2020, there was a 300% increase in reported cybercrimes, and 2021 is slated to beat that. Uh, and that number is looking to increase all the way through 2025. This is not a challenge that's going away. It's only getting worse. And the best way we can fight it is by having a cyber conscious workforce in our industry. So rising costs, rising occurrences, more risk. Is there a way that we can uh, not necessarily put out necessarily a positive spin on this, but is there a way that uh, using the analysis that the analysts at Fitch are creating and producing, are, is there a way for uh, observers and investors to be able to uh, see and recognize uh, those that are taking this uh, more seriously relative to others? Absolutely. So I would, I would encourage, you know, think, looking at things like our ESG scores, which factors in cyber risk, as well as our publications on cyber risk, you know, we've been very active in, in publishing about, you know, the emerging risks fa facing various sectors. And I think that's a practice that we're going to continue to do. That should give at least a, a, a compass to investors on sort of where what's happening, where the risk is coming from, what issuers may be impacted the most. And in my experience, Tom, just having this conversation has led to a bit of a revolution in people waking up and understanding that this isn't just somebody just just recognizing up. yeah exactly just recognizing the risk has led to things like legislative actions just this year there's been several steps both by the administration and congress to address this risk uh, maybe even having something one day like a national reporting requirement where entities are required to report their breaches that way we can better understand what the what the threat actors are focusing on. So I think just having the conversation has led to a bit of a revolution in understanding the risk. And I can tell you where the industry is today in understanding the risk is completely different than when they were when Atlanta happened. I don't know of anybody who's not talking about this on some level, where before Atlanta, if you brought this up, people would have looked at you very confused. That's constructive. Let's. Uh, I think that's a, a positive point we can end our discussion on. Thanks very much, Ramit. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks very much for those who tuned in and downloaded our recording today. Again, thanks for listening. And for those interested, you can also see the recent Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary and listen to our podcasts by going to hilltopsecurities.com backslash commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Again, thanks everyone for joining us today. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future related to topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance and also public finance. This has been Tom Kozak from Hilltop Securities. Thanks for listening to Hilltop Talks a Hilltop Securities podcast where we navigate the impact of politics and finance on the financial markets. For those interested, 
You can view our Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary by visiting hilltopsecurities.com backslash municipal dash commentary and hilltopsecurities.com backslash economic dash commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone, for subscribing, tuning in, and participating. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future on topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance. This has been Tom Koslick at Hilltop Securities. This communication is intended for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice, nor is it an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment or other specific product or service. Financial transactions may be dependent upon many factors such as, but not limited to, interest rates, tax rates, supply and change in laws, rules and regulations, as well as changes in credit quality and rating agency considerations. The effect of such changes in such assumptions may be material and could affect the projected results. Any outcome or result Hilltop Securities or any of its employees may have achieved on behalf of our clients in previous matters does not necessarily indicate similar results can be obtained in the future for current or potential clients. Hilltop Securities makes no claim the use of this communication will assure a successful outcome. For additional information, comments, or questions, please contact Hilltop Securities, Inc. Hilltop Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hilltop Holdings, New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol HTH. Hilltop Securities is located at 717 North Harwood Street, Dallas, Texas, 75201. Phone number 833-4-HILLTOP, H-I-L-L-T-O-P, and is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation.